All right, children, you, we're going to dismiss you to, to Sunday school downstairs. But before we go, Corey wanted me to tell you, point out to you what this over here is. This is a baptismal. You guys are going to learn about baptism today in Sunday school. And this is where people who uh, encounter a, a Jesus Christ and understand them to be uh, the only means in which they can have relationship with God and be restored to him and give, be given eternal life. When they identify Jesus as that and they believe and receive him, they testify to the known world that they belong to Jesus and they identify with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection by going into the waters of baptism and being laid into the water to signify Jesus being buried and then coming up in newness of life, the new life that Jesus has given because he had victory over death. And so that's what the the Great Commission uh, Jesus told, ended his uh, recording in Matthew by saying, go into all the world and, and make disciples and have them be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So it's very important for us, if we're a biblical church, that we want to model that. And so when people receive Jesus, encounter him in a personal saving way, we tell them, like, the first commandment that you need to do is be baptized to signify to the world that you now belong to Jesus and you identify with him. Okay, and that's what... I just gave you the entire lesson probably, but go downstairs. No, we're good. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. I'm sorry. You said say something. I didn't know what to say. All right. Okay. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be mainly in the book of Psalms. Uh, Psalm 19 is where we're going to spend most of our time, but I do have a few other texts that we're going to be hitting on in Philippians and, uh, and the book of Psalms, and then ultimately... Uh, Revelation will be ending with. So if you kind of want to get your Bibles, uh, get your fingers in your Bibles, but most of the time will be rooted in the text, and hopefully the text should be behind us as well. People often ask me, um, why do you use screens? Why do you have your, your scriptures up there? For me personally, it's really uh, distracting for me when I come to a church and I have a different translation than what's being preached out of. And so I'm, I'm reading my Bible, and it's not the same as what the pastor's reading. And so uh, for me, I think it's uh, important that if you're like me and that gets distracting, you can at least follow along behind me. But I encourage you to use your own Bibles. Uh, mark them up, make notes, however you feel like you're, uh, you can gain the most out of it. Uh, this morning's sermon is called Rooted in God's Word. Rooted in God's Word. How important it is. And, and we... The last few weeks, the last couple months, actually, we've been going through, uh, we just finished up a series on, on God's dwelling place, and we saw through Scripture how where God dwells, has dwelt here on earth, uh, beginning in the tabernacle, in the days of Moses, and the wandering of the wilderness, and then the temple, the temple, uh, physical temple in Jerusalem. Uh, the tabernacle was a temporary place, a structure that was moved as they moved. The temple, and when they were established in Jerusalem, was built through Solomon, um, but ultimately, we ended last week saying that uh, the fulfillment of the temple and what the temple was ultimately pointing to was Jesus Christ. And he is the ultimate fulfillment of God's dwelling uh, here on earth. When he came to earth, he was God dwelling amongst us. Right. And uh, ultimately, as we saw in last week's, uh, you can st- listen to this sermon online. It's online at our 
uh, website if, you, if I'm confusing you right now, but ultimately we found that because those that who encounter Jesus Christ, are, are the gospel is proclaimed, people hear this message, they receive the message as truth, and they believe it, that Jesus is the means, the only way, the truth, and the life to come to the Father, to be the mediator, and as they do that, the miraculous supernatural occurrence of the Holy Spirit coming and giving us a new heart. We made a new creation in Christ. We are placed in Christ in the spiritual sense because we now belong to Him and God sees us in His righteousness. It's just an amazing, that's the good news that we don't have to earn merit with God by how good we are. We, we find our merit and favor with God because we have received Jesus and it is His righteousness that is seen by the Father. It's a gift given to us. It's by grace, unmerited favor. And as we do that, the, the Spirit, the promises in Scripture, we saw it in John, in our series in John, that Jesus said, I must go so that the Comforter may come. The Holy Spirit. He will be with you and in you. The promise is the Spirit of God will indwell the heart of the believer. As you receive Jesus, the Spirit comes in, moves in. And begins to desire to do a transforming work. To change you from the inside out. Through his power and his strength as we learn to yield to him. And so ultimately the conclusion of last week's sermon was we, not two weeks ago I guess. That we are the temple of God because God dwells in us. And so the New Testament believer is the temple of God. The spirit of God. The third person of our triune God dwells in our hearts. And therefore we are now the temple. But what does that mean? Paul would go on to say, and Peter would say that we can, uh, are we to be filled with the Spirit? We talked about that in Galatians at the last part of our last couple series, our, uh, sermons in our ser- sermon series of Galatians, that the, the call is for us to be filled with the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit. And in doing so, the fruit of the Spirit would be made manifest in our lives in Galatians chapter 5 there. But what does that mean? He'd also say we, we can grieve the Spirit. Or we can suffocate the Spirit. So, so what does that mean to the believer? I mean, if this is the important aspect of the believer, because what I've uh, hopefully uh, consistently uh, communicated is that the Christian ethic, the Christian walk, is not about how good we can become in our own strength and how many boxes that we can check and establishing ourselves in our own righteousness. The Christian ethic, the Christian walk is learning to yield to the Spirit and allow Him to live through us. Allow the love of Jesus to shine through us. Allow Him to transform us from the inside out. But what does that mean? How do we do that? What does it mean to be filled by the Spirit? What does it mean to, be, to walk in the Spirit? What does it mean that we are the temple and so I just want to spend the next couple of weeks just um, talking about the things that, that God has given us as believers to, to help us in His desire to transform us and to walk in His strength and power. I talked about that when you're saved, you're, you're given that new heart and you, and you are uh, a new creation in Christ. And, and that's, that's, that's what you're going to be taken into eternity. But all of us quickly find out that that old heart that, that we had before encountering Jesus is still in us right now. And that's hence the battle of the two hearts. The heart that was given to us by God and the heart of stone that, that we were born with that was 
rebellious towards God and separated towards God. And, and so we have this battle going on inside of us right now. And, and one day, one day Jesus will return and, and the promise is that that old heart will be finally put to death. But until then, the call for us in Scripture is to feed the new heart. And so the Christian ethic is not about what, focusing on what we don't do. That's what the Pharisees did, right? They focused on the things that they didn't do that demonstrated their righteousness. The Christian ethic is about what we do. The great commandment, right? I give you a new command, Jesus says. Love one another as I have loved you. I'm sorry, I can't do that in my own strength. It has to be supernatural. It has to be from another source. And so how do we feed that new heart? And the, the, the major, the main tool is that the Spirit of God dwells within us, yes. But we closed last week with John chapter 4 when Jesus said toward the woman at the well, the hour is coming and is now here that we will worship the Father in truth, in spirit and in truth, right? So the Spirit, capital S, we are now the temple. The Spirit of God dwells within us. But it's the foundation of that is not only the spirit within us, but, but the, the truth that has been revealed to us in his revealed word. That is the sword of the spirit, Paul would say in Ephesians. That's the tool that the spirit uses in our life is God's word. And so how important it is for us to understand that when I'm standing up here saying we need to be in our Bibles, it's not so you can check off a box. It's to, to encounter Christ again and again, to behold His glory again and again. He's, he's given us His Word, His revealed Word. And the call of Scripture is that we be, are to be rooted in it, just like a tree. And we'll go on here. Um, I just wanted to start things off with Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. And Paul's writing here, and towards the end of all of his letters, he, he always goes from... Uh, starts his letters off with what God has done in the gospel and through Christ and the amazing blessings that we have. And then towards the end of his, chapter, uh, end of his, his letters, he says, because of what God has done, this is what we are to do. Right? There's always application. And so this, this morning's ser- sermon is about application. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? How can we cooperate with the Spirit to um, allow Him to transform us from the inside out? And Paul says here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. His conclusion of the matter is, this is what we are to do, right? Not focusing on what we don't do, but this is what we are to do. And as I look at this list, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, there's things in this world that I can maybe pick out and say, well, this thing is, is, is pure in my eyes, right? Or whatever is true, uh, you know, we can, we can pick and, and grab and, and try to, to dwell on those things, but but the comprehensive list, what I see when I look at the Scripture, and Paul doesn't say this explicitly, but for me, when I see that, the only thing that I can truly rely on that is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And he's revealed in God's inspired written word. And so if we are to dwell on the things, these things, to feed this new heart that God has given us, the only thing that I can count on is God's word. His revealed word that shows us and communicates to us the living word, Jesus Christ. And so how important it is for us to to understand this beautiful, amazing gift that God has given us, his revelation. The book of Psalms is just a tremendous uh, area of Scripture that we can go to um, the book of Psalms is mainly written by King David. And uh, the scriptures say that King David is a man after God's own heart. And you when you look at King David and you follow along in his life, you'll see that David made a lot of mistakes. A lot of bad mistakes. And so, in our eyes, we can say, well, how can he be after God's own heart if he truly was just like you and I? Full of mistakes and missteps. And I think as you look at the book of Psalms, you'll see why God said this about him. Because David again and again demonstrates to us that he knew of his condition. And he knew how dependent he was upon God. Again and again in the Psalms, he would go to, to, to God in prayer. The Psalms is a collection of hymns that they sang. We sang one last night. But they're, as you read them, they're, they're prayers. And it's David being very honest. If you look into the book of Psalms, you'll see David dealt with depression. David dealt with anxiety. David dealt with people from the outside uh, slandering him, pursuing him, trying to destroy his, his, his leadership and all those things. And the Psalms is a place where I go. I just don't have the strength to muster up my own prayer. I can go and open the book of Psalms and I can just pray back a prayer to God. As I see the struggles that David has gone through are reflected in my own life. It's just an amazing collection of hymns, inspired words by our God. And Psalms 1 kind of introduces the book of Psalms to us. And, and this is what it says again. The, the title of this message is being rooted in God's word. And, and the first Psalm says this. Happy, how happy or blessed is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. So David's saying, if you want to be blessed, if you want to live this victorious life that, and the New Testament ethic, the, the, the hard part about this sermon is I'm, I'm using an Old Testament, right? An Old Testament uh, book, but I'm speaking in the New Testament context. Okay, so if, you, if I get you confused, just let me know and I'll, 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 um, I'll try to get it all figured out. But he's saying... Happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked. So he's telling us what not to do. If you want to be blessed, if you want to have this victorious life, this is what not to do. 
right? Don't walk with the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of the mockers. He goes on in verse 2 to tell us what we are to do. Instead, his delight in, is in the Lord's instruction, in God's word. And he meditates on it day and night. So if you want to live this life that God has for you in Christ and, and, the, and be transformed from the inside out, the, 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 the first thing that the psalmist says is you must not walk with the old ways. Instead, your affections, as Paul said, need to dwell on the good and pure and lovely things. And that can be found in God's Word. His delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He goes on to say, He is like a tree planted besides flowing streams that bears fruits in its, bears its fruits in its seasons. And, at le- and its leaves does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. And so we can all understand that, right? This is the, the, the outworking of if you, if you do it God's way, you will be like a tree that's planted by a stream with flowing waters. And we can see the contrast already, right? The tree that's planted by waters, all its fruits are displaying, nothing withers. But then we see the tree that's in the desert with no moisture. And that's what Christianity can become to those who neglect these important uh, disciplines of being and meditating on God's, the things of God. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will stand up in the judgment. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the, in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. What a descriptive passage for us to understand how important it is to dwell in the things of God, to be rooted in God's Word. If God's Word is the sword of the Spirit, how important it is for us to to be in it, to dwell on it. And and again, it's not checking a box. It's to, to behold the glory of Jesus. And as we do that, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, as we do that, as we behold God's, the, the glory of our Savior, we are transformed into His image through the power of the Spirit. This is the tool in which God uses to grow us. We don't have to whip it up inside of us and have it in our own strength. It is through the Spirit and cooperating with Him. And being dwelling on God and beholding who Jesus is. Is the only means as our affections are worked up about Jesus and who what he's done for us. That's the only means in which we will live, desire to live more and more for him. It's like a marriage. Right? The the more time I spend with my wife, the more I understand how just an amazing woman she is, and the more I love her. I love her more than now than I did when I married her. Don't ask her if she does the same with me. But I know more of her. And I want to be better for her. 
And it's the, the same thing. I mean, Paul does describe our relationship with, with Christ, the church, as right? the, the bride and the bridegroom. And the more we know about Jesus, the more our affections are stirred up towards him. The more I want to be with him, the more I want to know him. And it's through experiencing him through his word. Jesus told the woman at the well, the day is now here when you shall worship God in spirit and in truth. His high priestly prayer in John 17 says, Father, sanctify them, set them apart from the world through your truth. Your word is truth. What are we to dwell on? Whatever is true. What an amazing gift we have. God's revealed word. So we are rooted, are to be rooted in God's revelation. Psalm 19, this is where we're going to spend the majority of our, the remaining time. Psalm 19, rooted in God's revelation. All my points this morning um, start with R. A little alliteration going on here. Rooted in God's revelation. And I love Psalm 19 because this is a, Psalm 19 is a part of my testimony. Psalm 19 starts off saying this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expense, expanse proclaims the work of His hands. Day after day they pour out speech. Night after night they communicate knowledge. And so the Psalm 19 begins with saying, declaring that the heavens declared the glory of God, that God's revelation in, uh, in creation declare God's glory, right? It's, we call it regular revelation. It's um, a revelation that goes throughout the entire world. There's, as we will see, there's, there's no one without excuse. The creation demands a creator. Um, I grew up trying to do religion, falling on my face time and time again, trying to have a relationship with God by working enough morality in my life to be able to have a relationship with Him, only to fail time and time again, never feeling like it was enough. And so I just kind of gave up on it. I went to college in my 20s, went to a secular college where they openly taught that there was no God, that evolution was the means in which we were here. And so I begin to embrace that. Why? Because if there is no God, then I am not accountable to anything or anybody. I can be my own God. I can decide what's true and what's not true. And as long as you don't bug me, then you can have your truth too. And that's exactly where our society is going and is, is right now. There's no such thing as absolute truth. And then uh, I was a river guide, and in the summers I'd, I'd take people down rivers all over the West Coast. And I got invited to go on a 21-day trip down the Grand Canyon. And about th- three or four days in, all my batteries ran out. All the distractions that I tried to bring into the canyon with me were gone. And all I had was God's beautiful creation to observe. And I began to look around and just see the complex order of the stars 
I mean, people have seen stars, but if you haven't seen stars, I'm telling you, you know, everyone has their own opinion on the best place to see stars. At the bottom of the Grand Canyon, when there's no, when all the atmospheric lights cut out because of those steep canyon walls, and you see just these, just billions of stars, but it's like a kaleidoscope because the, the view's so narrow and the rotation of the earth, they're just, they're rotating. You can see the rotation. Just viewing a kaleidoscope, it's just, it was amazing. And then I began to think about, we are just one little planet around, orbiting around one star of this complex galaxy, Milky Way galaxy, and how many galaxies are there? We don't know. And it's all in working design order, down to the DNA level, the complex coding of DNA. Demand, demand a creator. The heavens declare the glory of God. And I was down there, I was like, there's no way this all happened by chance. The two particles of dust somehow collided together, never mind where the two particles of dust came from. And all this order came into existence. And if we just have enough billions of years to the timeline, then, then that allows for enough chance for all this just to happen. It's nonsense. It's foolishness. The heavens declare the glory of God. And so I came out of that, that uh, crack in the earth and I began my journey. And there was a lot of detours along the way. But praise be to God, by His grace, I stand here knowing not only that there was a creator that created all things, but I have a relationship with Him because there's more to God's revelation than just His general revelation. And that's His redemptive revelation found in God's Word. You go on in 19.3 through 6, there is no speech, there are no words, their voice is not heard. Um, so day after day, so it's saying God's revelations, communicating the, the message of His glory. Um, and then verse 3 can tend to trip us up a little bit. And ultimately what that's saying is the, the God's uh, message of, of His revelation in general revelation is is not through literal words. But the effects of his revelation are his message. So there is no speech, there are no words, their voice is not heard, but God's message is clearly communicated to every nook and cranny of this earth. Their message has gone out to the whole world, to the whole earth, and their words to the ends of the world in the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun. It's that geocentric view that we are down here on earth and, and we have this one star that's just perfectly right where it needs to be and where planets just perfectly tilted just right where it needs to be to have our four seasons and, and all those things. And, and, and so from our view, we see the sun and we expect, we know the sun's going to be there day after day. He has pitched, in the heavens, he has pitched the tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming from his home. It rejoices like an athlete running a course. The, it's describing this, this expectancy and this excitement of the sun. And anybody that's been camping and has been rained on, you know, sleeping in a sleeping bag that's soaked, full of dew, can't wait for that sun to come up. So excited and expected for it. And then when that that warmth hits you. There's nothing like it. It rises from one end of the heavens. 
the sun does and circles to their to the other end to their other end. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The heavens declare God's glory. But that's not the only thing that God demonstrates his reality to us, to his creation. He has given us special revelation. Redemptive revelation. Because what the one thing that God's general revelation cannot do is tell us what the meaning and purpose of our existence is. We know we're here. We know there's order. We know there must be a creator, but it doesn't tell us who this creator is. And so God, in his love, has communicated who he is in his revealed revelation his redemptive revelation in God's word. We know in God's word the beginning, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know the problem that chapter 3, the mankind, because of Adam and Eve, they fell from God's uh, command and or disobeyed God's command and they fell from the uh, their, their status with him, that they were separated with him because of their sin. We know the problem. Chapter 4, we have our first murder. We know that God's perfect and good creation was quickly spun out into what we are experiencing today in this world. The consequences of a world in existence that is separated and, and um, bemoans the existence of God and embraces their own sense of good, their own sense of pursuing fleshly desires to satisfy their lusts. That's what we are in today, but we know why. And we also know that there's good news. Genesis 3.15 points, makes the first mention of the good news, the he who would come that would squash the devil's head. And the Old Testament begins to to prophesy of this one, this Messiah that would come and the tribe that we'd come from and the, and the, the lineage he would come from and, and all these prophecies of who this Messiah would be. And Jesus shows up on the scene. We know that because God has revealed it to us in his redemptive revelation, his revealed special revelation found in God's word. Jesus shows up on the scene, demonstrates his power over creation because he's God in the flesh. He, he heals sick people. He raises Lazarus from the dead. He walks on water. He's he's showing again and again, look, I am unique. I am the only begotten son from heaven who has come down, took upon flesh. Not only did he display his power, not only did he, he provide teaching for us, but he ultimately he was the fulfillment of what the first Adam fell in. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, that Jesus is the last Adam, where our forefather in the flesh, Adam, failed, Jesus fulfilled for us. And anybody who hears the gospel proclamation that Jesus came not only to teach and provide, uh, his, uh, demonstrate who, who he was, but he went to the cross and died for your sin. He, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 1 Corinthians 5.21 Jesus, God, your creator, took upon flesh and went to the cross to pay a penalty that you deserve. 
It's an eternal penalty. And because he was eternal God, he could pay that penalty one time for you. And he extends salvation and the atonement and being adopted into his family, the last Adam's family, the family of God, being pulled out of the first Adam, the family of the first Adam, and separated from God and being adopted into his, the, God, the family of God. I'm talking too fast, got to slow down. Be adopted into the family of God. By what? How can that, that unique gift of salvation that Jesus did for you on the cross be applied to your account? 17 years ago, that was the question I had in my mind when I heard about this good news that Jesus died for me. And in my legalistic way, I'm like, all right, I'm in, I'm in a Baptist church, so it must mean I need to get baptized and I have to join their church. I'm going to have to do all these things. And then the preacher says, you must believe. Because in the Word, that's what it says. It doesn't say join a church, physical church. It doesn't say get baptized. Whoever believes will have eternal life. Whoever receives Him and the Spirit comes and gives you that new heart, that is the one. It's that, that Word of grace, that unmerited favor that's extended to us by our God because Jesus ultimately did something that we could never do. He lived that standard, that law, perfectly for us, for our account. And this is all found out in God's redemptive revelation, in His Word. We know why we're here. We know who our Creator is. We know why there's evil and sin in the world. We know that God has provided a means of escape and salvation through the Messiah, Jesus. And we even have the end of the story, of the redemptive story in Revelation. There's coming a time, church, where our faith will be sight. We will see Jesus face to face. We will truly see with our own eyes what is pure, what is lovely, what is commendable. We will see him. We will have all of eternity to worship him for what he's done for us. By saving us from what we truly deserve. It is God's redemptive revelation, his special revelation found in God's word. God's word shows us the story of God's living word, Jesus Christ. Psalm 19, 7 through 13 says this, The instruction of the Lord is perfect. So this is he's talking about not general revelation, but God's word, God's revealed word. He's, he's given us this beautiful book of his redemptive story. And this is the affection that we should have for it. The instruction of the Lord is perfect. Renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy. Making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right. Making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. What does it mean to have the fear of the Lord? Are you to be afraid of Him? To live your life constantly in fear? That's what I used to think. And outside of Jesus, I think you should fear the Lord. Because outside of Jesus, you'll be judged according to your works. My friend, that is not a place to be. Jesus has offered a way, a means in which you can instead 
to be blessed by God, have eternal life, and an eternity that is with Him, well, He will dwell amongst us. But what is the fear of the Lord for the Christian, for the New Testament context? And, uh, my pastor in, in Salt Lake, Nathaniel Wall, he, he had a good analogy. He lived in a place where there was a hurricane that hit his town. You know, and the question before the hurricane was, do we leave? Do we fear, flee? And they, they started, you know, his parents kind of started waffling. Out, we don't know if we should leave. And then but there came a time when it was too late. Or they feared that if they left and tried to flee from the storm that they would get caught in the outside in the middle of it. And so they decided to stick it out and they said things were flying off the roof, you know, and trees were getting knocked over and all those things that happens in, in terrible hurricanes and all of a sudden the eye of the storm, the eye of the hurricane came over their town. And it went from destruction everywhere to perfect, still calmness because they were in the eye. And he was observing, he's like, wow, this is so weird, and this must be the eye of the hurricane. But he began to notice that there was just thousands of birds everywhere. Because the, the birds intuitively knew that when the storm came, instead of fleeing from the storm against what we would think is rational, they went to the center of the storm. And that's what the fear of the Lord is. Not to flee God and, and fear Him, but instead go to the Lord, to the sinner. He is our rock. He is our shelter in this time of storm. And that is what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord. To have Him in focus, in primary focus, to be completely as David again and again shows in the book of Psalms, to be dependent on God. Even when you know in your heart of hearts that you have nothing to offer Him. Sometimes the biggest step in faith is to, to live this out, knowing how undeserving you truly are of God's love. But yet He extends it to you. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold. That's how important God's Word is and should be for us. Even at $2,000 an ounce. What an amazing gift we have. God's Word. The sword of the Spirit. That the Spirit desires to use in our hearts. To transform us more into the image of Jesus as we do so. He goes on to say, Sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. I don't know how many people have been able to ever grab a honeycomb off the hive and eat it, right? That was something that the... Uh, the saints in the in the, the time of the Psalms, uh, that was a, a, a big to-do. That's how sweet and how much we should cherish God's Word. In addition, your servant is warned by them, right? Not only is it sweet and, and good and describe God and reveal who He is, but He's given us guideposts for life. Yes, we stand in the grace of, of salvation God's grace, we're, we're, we stand in the righteousness of Christ, but that doesn't mean we are to turn our back on what God has given to us and revealed to us, how we have a standard that we can uh, use as a, as a guide for life so that we don't go off track. Your servant is warned by them, and in keeping them, there is abundant reward. Who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. 
What an important concept for us in the New Testament context. Yes, we're in Christ, and, and oftentimes I admit to you, I sin, and I know I sin, but I just go on living. But that's where I grieve the Spirit. Because I just, I don't, I don't take time to come to the Lord in prayer and, and ask for cleansing, right? First John writes, He who uh, confesses his sin, he's, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just like a relationship with a husband and a wife, if there's something between us, my kids know. Our relationship is damaged. And God, through the grace and the blood of Jesus, has given us a way to, to come and confess our sins. And he's saying even the unintentional ones, the hidden faults, we are to confess those. So they're not in the mid- middle of our relationship. Cleansed in the blood of Jesus, yes. And he's saying even, God, I know there's things in me, there's sins in me that I don't even know about. Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins, the ones that we do know about. Do not let them rule me, right? We are to be controlled by the Spirit, not by our flesh. Then I will be blameless and cleansed from a blatant rebellion. A blatant rebellion. And so that's what the psalmist says about God's written redemptive revelation. So we have God's general revelation, his revealed revelation in his creation. We have his redemptive revelation in his word. But ultimately, again, I point to you the fact that this written word is not just a rule book. His written word is the story about the Messiah, Jesus. It points to him. We can behold Christ's glory by going to his word. Because ultimately, one day, God's revealed revelation in his word will be realized. It'll be realized revelation. It will no longer be a revelation that we take by faith in the power of the Spirit. It'll be an actuality. Does that excite you? Jesus is coming. John completes Revelation by recording what Jesus told him at the end here of Revelation 22. He says, look, Jesus said, I'm coming soon. And my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. I don't know about you, but my reward is just going to be able to see Jesus face to face. And spend all of eternity giving him his glory. And worship him without that fleshly heart that always tries to pull me away. That's going to be a good day. I am, he says, the Alpha and the Omega. That's the beginning and last letters of the Greek alphabet. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. Does he see what he's saying? Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, look, it's all about me. He is the first and last, the beginning and the end. He is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And in him... We are co-heirs because we're added into his family, his body, the church. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city of the gates by the gates. And we know that washing of the robes, the cleansing of sin is through the shed blood of Jesus and by faith, replacing our faith in him alone. Outside of Christ, 
are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexual immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Paul kind of mentions this in a couple of his letters as well. And I think it's in Corinthians, he says, and such were some of you. But the difference was that, he goes, but you've been washed. You've been cleansed by the blood. These people that are outside of this kingdom that is to come, it's only because they are not washed and cleansed by the blood of Jesus. They're just like you and I. Absent the gracious, redemptive, regenerative work of the Holy Spirit as the gospel is proclaimed. He goes on, verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David. Do you see the the dovetailing of the Old and New Testament, the prophecy, that the, the Davidic covenant, that through David's uh, lineage, through his reign, the king would re- his his kingdom would reign forever, and Jesus is through the lineage of David. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Verse seventeen: Both the Spirit, capital S, and the Bride say, "Come." So I can stand up here and I can give you an impassioned as best as I can with all the energy and tears in my eyes as I can about the gospel and how you need to turn and receive Jesus as your Savior. But unless the Spirit convicts you, I cannot save you. And so if you're outside of Jesus this morning, I pray that the Spirit, I pray to God, the Spirit, that He would convict you of your need. That He would say, come to you. Both the Spirit and the Bride say, come. The church says, come. Let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. You desire this eternal gift? Believe and receive Jesus as your Savior. Call out to Him. Tell Him, ask Him to save you of your, what you truly deserve. And I did that 17 years ago, and I testified the other day. There hasn't been a day gone by where he has not first reminded me of how insufficient I am in my own strength and righteousness, but reminded me of his grace and his love, that he will give you eternal life. I wouldn't be up here if I didn't think so. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you and just thank you, God, for your salvation that is found in Jesus. We thank you that you've revealed yourself We know who you are because you've given us your revealed, redemptive revelation, God. We're so thankful to not only know who you are, but know how we can have